But one of the things that the Lord has really been teaching me recently, and one of the things he's kind of been reteaching me and reminding me, is his love for me. Uh, and he's really, over the last season of my life, given me a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation for what it means to be loved by him as one of his kids. And there's been a lot of things that he's used to help me with that. Like, there's been some great books I've read. There's been some good sermons I've listened to. There's been some good songs, even the one we just sang, that God has used to really help me understand what it means to be loved by him as one of his own kids. But there is one thing that God has been using more than those things, more than sermons and books and songs. There's one thing that God has been over and over using to remind me of his love for me, and that is my own kids, all right? So I know it's a crowd pleaser to throw your kids up on the screen. It's easy. Uh, I actually tried really hard not to. So like every time I preached over the last like four years, I've always started with a picture of my kids. And I tried this one, like I'm not going to use my kids as the open illustration, but here they are, right? They're, they're dang cute. So get over it. We're going to look at a picture of my kids for a minute. So that's my kids, uh, my daughter Zion, my, or my son Zion, my daughter uh, Brianna. And so one of the things, like I said, God has been using them to teach me so much about his love for me. As I interact with them, as I think about even the way I feel about them as their dad, over and over, God has been reminding me in those moments, son, that's how I feel about you. The way that you love your kids, the way that you interact with your kids, right? That's how I feel about you as one of my own kids. So I told someone the other day, I said, hey, uh, if you really want to understand God's love for you, I would probably go tell you to go just interact with your kids for a little bit. Probably more than read a book, listen to a sermon. Like, if you really want to understand God's heart for you, think about how you feel about your kids. Think about that love that you have for them, that desire you have for them. That is how God feels about us. And so I would say, hey, go interact with your kids and think about them. Now, why would I say that? Because I think what God often does is God will use very little things that almost seem too simple to teach us really big truths about him. That many times the things in life that seem a little bit foolish, that seem a little bit silly, like can God really use kids to teach us about his heart for us? And he will, and he can, he's doing it for me. Because often, or God often uses what we think is too foolish, what we think is too simple, what we think is too silly to teach us amazing truths about who he is. And so as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians, what we're going to see this morning is we're going to get to a passage where Paul is going to talk about how what the world views as foolish is actually what God uses to bring about redemption. So the things that the world says, no, nah, that's foolish, that's silly, that's actually what God uses to bring redemption to this world. Now, before we get into that passage, there's a couple of things I need you to know uh, to kind of help you understand what Paul is going to say to us this morning. So there's two things. The first thing is this. You need to understand a little bit of the background of who Paul is writing to. So Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth, in the, in the city of Corinth. There's a church there, and Paul is writing to these Christians. And one of the things that these Christians and anyone really in the city of Corinth would have been uh, drawn towards is they were really drawn towards people who spoke uh, with really eloquent words, with like lofty language. So for them, people that were wise were people that could stand up and just give great speeches and could sound very smart and use big words. And so if you had great rhetoric, you must have been wise. Like, great rhetoric equals wisdom in their minds. Uh, even, here's an example, that in that culture, 
there was a group of uh, philosophers, Greek philosophers, who were called sophists. And they actually would go around to city to city, and they would basically be professional uh, speech givers, right? Like they would just go to cities, give speeches, and they would use big words, fancy words, and they would just wow the crowds with what they're saying. And everyone in that world would just be like, oh my gosh, those people, they're powerful, they're the elite, they're the most wise, and they would just listen to everything they had to say. So the people Paul was writing to, they would have been drawn towards that, people that spoke with lofty, fancy words, all right? That's the first thing you know, and hold on to that because we'll get back to that. Now, the second thing you need to know is that Paul, last week, the passage we looked at, he gave us a little hint into what he's going to talk about this week, this morning. And so let me show you the last verse that we looked at last Sunday as a reminder. Paul said this at the end of the passage we looked at together last week, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul is saying in this verse, he's saying, hey, all those guys in your culture that are, that are giving these great speeches and they seem so wise and they're using these big lofty words, Paul says, I'm not one of those guys. He says, I am not one of them. I don't measure up to those guys. I don't stand a chance against those guys. Because he, he says it himself and he says it all throughout the New Testament. He's not that great of a public speaker. Like he wasn't that great of a communicator. And Paul says, I'm not like them. But that didn't discourage Paul. That didn't make Paul get upset. Why? Because he realized it's not about his presentation. It's not about fancy words. It's not about giving this great speech. He knew it wasn't even about him being the person presenting. It was about the gospel that he was presenting and the gospel that he was bringing. And so they in their culture, they would have been drawn towards these people. Paul says, I'm not one of them and that's okay. And that sets up our passage this morning because what, again, Paul is going to do is he's going to say, it's what the world views as foolish is what God actually uses to bring about redemption. So there's two things in our passage you're going to see. We're going to talk about a foolish message and a foolish people, all right? When I use foolish this morning, like think foolish, right? Like it's foolish to what the, what the world sees. And I will give you a heads up as well. Uh, every time I ran through the sermon this week, anytime I tried to say foolish and message together, I got tongue-tied. So at some point this morning, I will screw it up. I probably already have. So you can laugh at me. I don't care. Like, it's fine. We can laugh together. And like Paul, it's not about me being the presenter. It's about the message. So Paul was in good. I'm in good company. Paul's there. So, uh, but we're going to look at a foolish message and a foolish people, right? So let's look at our passage together. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. And this is what Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we have preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So again, what Paul is going to hammer home in this passage is that the, the thing that the world views as foolish is what God actually uses to bring about redemption. And he starts this passage, you might have caught it at the beginning, he says, for the word of the cross. 
And when he says the word of the cross, he's referring to the gospel. He's referring to the good news that Jesus came into this world to save us from our sin, and he did that by dying on a cross. That you and I are separated from God because of our sin. So he went to the cross, he took upon himself our sin, and died on that cross so that our sins can be forgiven. That is the good news of the cross. That is the gospel. That is the finished work of Christ. And Paul says, that is what I'm talking about here. Now, according to Paul, the cross means different things to different people, depending on who you are. And in this passage, he says there's basically only two people in the world when it comes to the cross. And I want to mention them to you. The first one is this. He says those who are perishing. He says when it comes to the cross, there's a group of people in this world, a vast majority of the people in the world who are in this category, they are perishing. This means people who have not placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus. They're not believers. They, they haven't placed their faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done for them. And they find the cross a little bit foolish. They find it silly. They find it unnecessary. They find it uh, as something that's not important. Like, sure, maybe it's a great symbol or maybe it's a great inspirational story, but it's really not something I need for my life. And they're perishing. They find the cross foolish. Now, there's a second group, and Paul says, if you're a believer, you're in this group. He says the second group is those who are being saved. So there's those who are perishing, and then there's those who are being saved. And he's referring here to believers, and that's you and I. If we place our faith in Jesus, we are those who are being saved, that we trust in the finished work of Jesus. And we don't find the cross as foolish. We actually find the cross as powerful. We find it as where the powerful act of God changes us because of what Christ has done for us. And instead of finding the cross as foolish or finding it as silly or finding it as something we don't really need, we find the cross as beautiful. We find the cross as something that we love. And as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about, okay, how do we as believers view the cross, the lyrics of an old hymn came to mind. And I grew up in a church that uh, we sing a lot of hymns, and we used to sing the old rugged cross. And you probably, if you've been around church for a while, you know some of the lyrics. But let me read you these lyrics, because I think it sums up exactly how we, if we are people who are being saved by the cross, this is how we view that cross. And I'm not going to sing it to you. Don't worry. I'm just going to read it. No singing, all right? That's Gary's job. Uh, On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for the world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his throne above to bear sin on dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For trust on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. And hopefully you feel that. Like if you are a believer, if you're someone, you're no longer perishing, but you are being saved by the cross, I hope you feel those lyrics. Like I hope you understand the cross is not foolish. The cross is not unnecessary. The cross is not some ugly thing. The cross is something that we love. The cross is something we cherish. The cross is something that the, that lyric said, a wondrous attraction. We're drawn to it. Why? Because that's where our Savior died for us. Now, not everyone's in that category. I said at the beginning, the vast majority of the world, they're in that first category. They're perishing. They don't view the cross as beautiful. They view it as foolish. And, and honestly, a church our size, there's probably many of you in this room right now that you're in that first category. Now, you probably wouldn't say, yeah, I think the cross is foolish because you're in church. You know the right answer. You're not going to raise your hand and be like, it's foolish, right, if you do your jerk. Uh, but uh, you're not going to do that, right? You know the right answer. 
But if you're honest, there's people, and you might be one of them, you're sitting right here in this room, and if you would be honest, you would say, yeah, the cross is a little foolish. Like this Jesus thing you guys sing about, this Jesus and this cross you talk about, it seems a little silly. It seems unnecessary. It doesn't seem important. It seems a little bit absurd. And maybe you're here because your spouse is here. Like maybe your spouse has been coming and they've been bugging the snot out of you to come to Redemption Chapel and you're like, all right, fine, I'll come. But you don't really want to be here. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, yeah, this is kind of silly. I don't really care for it. Or maybe your kids are here and they love the kids on and you're like, well, I like my kids and I like them having fun. So I'm here and it's a free hour of babysitting, who knows, Uh, but you're here. Uh, maybe uh, you're a student and you're like, I'm here because I don't want to get grounded. Like my parents made me come, so I'm here. Uh, but you don't really find the cross beautiful. If you're honest, you find the cross a little bit silly, a little foolish. Or maybe your life is falling apart. And maybe you walked in this room today and your life is at the, you're at the end of your rope and you don't even know where to go. And for some reason, a church was the last resort for you. But here's the thing. If, if you're in that group, if you're in that group that's perishing and you find the cross a little bit foolish, let me this morning, I beg you, I beg you, consider that maybe the thing that you find foolish is the thing that actually has the power to change your life. What if the cross, what if the gospel, this thing that you find silly, that you find unnecessary, that you find absurd, what if it's this gospel and this cross that God actually has in store for you a whole new life, redemption, forgiveness of sins. He wants to change your life. And I can't go through this passage without stopping and saying that if you're in that first category and you're perishing, please consider asking God to move you into the the next group and being one of those people to experience salvation, being saved by the cross. Because I think there's people in here, you will find the cross foolish, but if you embrace faith, you will find it as something that's actually beautiful, something that's amazing, and something that does have the power to change your life. Now, going back to our passage Paul mentions, he, he says, okay, this, this message of the gospel, it's a little foolish to the world. He, it's a foolish message. He knows that according to the world. But he says, it's this foolish message that God uses to confront and to bring down the wisdom of this world. Because what Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to know and wants us to know as we read this passage is that we don't come to know God through the wisdom of this world. The way that you and I come to connect with Jesus, the way that we come to know God is not through the wisdom of this world. That's why it says the world did not know God through wisdom. Now you notice he does go out, he he calls out a couple of people in this passage. He calls out the Jews and he says the Jews missed it. The Jews missed the gospel because for them the cross, this message of the cross, this message of Jesus, it was a stumbling block for them. So for a Jew, the thought of the Messiah coming to this world and being humbled to the point of death on a cross was absurd to them. They thought that was complete nonsense because they thought the Messiah was going to be this conquering king and he's going to come and overthrow Rome and set up his earthly kingdom. He's not going to die on a cross and be executed by Rome. There's no way. So for them, they missed the gospel because they were trying to look through their worldly lens of what they thought the gospel should be. And then he calls out Greeks, right? This is Gentiles, people who aren't Jews. And the Gentiles, they were cultured. These were people that they wanted to know God through reason and through knowledge. And so for God to be uh, this transcendent God, to come down to the world, take upon himself flesh, and become a personal, uh, re- come into a personal relationship with us, that was foolish to them. They didn't think that was how God operated. And so both the Jews and the Gentiles missed it. They missed the gospel because they were looking for it through the lens of what the world said was wise. Now, we do this as well. We miss it in our culture all the time. 
So when you think about this, when we are seeking out truth and wisdom in our culture, we often go to the wrong places. That when we want to know what's true, when we want to know what's wise, we are often do not go to the gospel, we go to other places. We go to people that are successful, uh, that uh, have influence. We go to people that have a lot of power, and then they have a lot of money, right? So power, influence, money, possessions, all that. If you have those things, we give you a lot of airtime in our culture, right? Like we set you up on a pedestal and we say, whatever you say is true. Whatever you say must be wise. So think about it. Think about the people that we hear the most from in our culture. It's athletes. It's actors, movie stars, right? It's, it's politicians. It's professors. It's social media influencers. And if you're like, what's that? Like they film a bunch of TikTok dance videos and they get millions of views and a ton of money. It's weird, I know. But, but there's a ton of them, right? And if you're an influencer online or if you are a professor or if you are an athlete, anything you say, we uphold and say that must be truth and that must be wisdom. And we go to those all the time. And now I'm not knocking on athletes and I'm not knocking on social media influencers. They're fine. They have a voice. But they're not the primary source for truth. They're not the way we come to know God. They're not the way we come to enter a relationship with God, because the message that the gospel brings doesn't line up to what the world says. It's a little bit foolish. And so we, if we're not careful, we can miss the gospel. We can miss what God actually is doing because we're going to the wrong place and we're viewing that through the wrong lens. And so the gospel, like I said, the gospel centers around a crucified Savior. It's centered around the work of Christ on the cross, and then eventually he rose. And this message is a little bit foolish to the world, but that's okay. That's okay. Now, what Paul does next in our passage is he transitions, and he he moves from talking about a message that the world views as foolish, and he starts talking about people that are foolish. And 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 he says, basically, there's a foolish people that God calls. And I'll give you a heads up. He's actually talking about us as Christians, so be ready to be made fun of by the Apostle Paul a little bit. But he continues in verse 26, and this is what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you who are wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul here, now he turns his attention. It's almost like he starts thinking about this congregation at the church of Corinth. And he starts thinking about who they are. And he starts maybe thinking about names and faces of people in that church. And he starts to rattle off what he thinks about them. He says, you're foolish, you're weak, you're low, right? You're despised, not very flattering. But Paul's being just honest here because he looks at the church of Corinth and he says, you're really nothing special. Like like all of you, you're kind of foolish, you're kind of weak. And he's just being honest with them. But, But what he says next is what's important because what he says is God chose them. And Paul uses that phrase, God chose, three times in this passage, right? And so there, that's, that's a reason. He wants us to see that. And what he is showing us and what he's showing them is that, yes, you are weak. Yes, you are foolish. Yes, you are despised. Yes, you are low. But God chose you. God intentionally chose to use you and to work in your life regardless of that. 
Now think about what we're calling this series. Like look at this, look at the sermon title again. Like we're calling the series First Corinthians when church is a dumpster fire. And if you remember when, when we kicked off this series, like this church is a mess. And as we go throughout this letter of 1 Corinthians, you're going to find out this church was a dumpster fire through and through. But here's what I want you to know. This is a dumpster fire that God chose. It's not that God was stuck with the church of Corinth. God chose these Christians and said, I want you. Dumpster fire and all. You are the people I'm choosing to work in. You're the people I'm choosing to bring about redemption to the world. And so God intentionally chooses what many times the world casts off. So, so the world looked at this church and said, they're nothing special. But God said, no, they're the people I want. And those are the people God chose. And we see this throughout the Bible. This is all throughout the pages of Scripture. We see God over and over choosing what the world often views as weak and foolish. So let me give you some examples. Think back to the Old Testament. So we have the nation of Israel. And when the, when the nation of Israel, they started to demand a king. And God eventually said, okay, you can have a king. That wasn't what he wanted for them. That wasn't the plan. But he said, if you want a king, I'll give you a king and let's see what happens. And we know it didn't go well. But they, they got a king. And they chose Saul. The people of Israel said, there's this guy named Saul. Uh, he's tall. He's handsome. Uh, the Bible says, like, no, there was no one else like him in the nation. Like, he was the guy. And they looked at Saul and said, man, this guy has it all together. He looks great. He looks like he's put together. He is going to be a great king. And so they choose Saul. And that didn't go well. But who did God choose? God chose David, a shepherd. Probably someone Israel did not have on their radar. Probably someone that Israel wasn't even considering to be a king. This dude was out in the fields with sheep, probably gross, probably dirty, probably didn't look like he had it all together. But God chose David to be a king of Israel and one of the, one of the best kings, right? And eventually the Bible would say a, a man after God's own heart. So again, we see God choosing what the world often views as foolish and weak. Now think about Jesus, Jesus comes into this world. We're going to celebrate his birth, right, in a, in a couple of weeks at the end of December. But, but Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's born of a virgin. And he's born into this little town of Bethlehem, and he's born in a stable, right? Not a very fancy birth, right? Or I said the first service, a bougie birth. So there you go. Threw out bougie there, right? But uh, it wasn't anything great. But, but God chose Jesus to be the savior of this world. I mean, this guy, Jesus, he was born in a stable. He went on to have, you know, a couple of years of ministry and doing miracles and all this stuff, but he was betrayed. He was murdered on a cross and he died. And that's what God chose. God chose him to be the savior of this world. Again, what the world considers foolish and weak is what God chooses to bring redemption. And it's not only Jesus himself. Think about the people that Jesus spent time with. When you read the gospels, over and over, Jesus was always spending time with people that the society pushed onto them, out to the margins. The people that the culture said, hey, they're dirty, they're not valuable, they're not important. Those are the people Jesus constantly was using and calling to be his disciples. Think about it. He, he would go uh, and spend time and call prostitutes, tax collectors, women, right, children, people with diseases, people that were on the margins of society of that time. God said, those are the people, Jesus said, those are the people that I want to use. He was constantly going after what the world considered foolish and weak. And then you have the Apostle Paul, right? We already said the Apostle Paul, he told us himself, he's nothing special. He wasn't a great communicator. He wasn't a great speaker. But God chose Paul 
to bring the gospel to so many new places, to plant so many new churches. I mean, he used Paul to write letters that are in the Bible today, letters that we are studying as a church right now. God used what the world considered foolish and weak for his purposes. And then you have us, Redemption Chapel. Like we're not in the Bible, right? Like we're not in the pages of scripture, but what God was doing back then, he's doing today and he's doing it in our church. Like look around, right? Like we're nothing special. Like look at the person beside you, like you're jacked up, right? You know that. And if you're married to him, you really know that, right? Uh, But we're nothing special. Like you look at our church, like we're a bunch of broken people, messy people with baggage and drama. Many times we're a dumpster fire just like this church. But God is choosing to use our church, choosing to use people in our church for his purposes. Yes, we're we're broken. We're messy. We're foolish at times. We're weak. We're despised. We're low. We're not the cultural elite. Like in Stowe, we're not like the top of the culture. Like everybody's looking at our church like we're the most powerful in Stowe. We're not. We're nothing special. But God is choosing to work in our church. God is choosing to work through many of you. And again, what the world often considers weak and foolish is what God chooses. Now, this should encourage you. It should. Because if you're honest, a lot of times, and I struggle with this as well, we think we're, we're too broken for God to use. Or, or, man, if you really knew what I did in my past, like, God couldn't use me. Or you think, I don't really have a lot of influence. I don't have a lot of money. Like, what can God do with my life right now? And if you feel like you're just too messed up or too jacked up or too low for God to use, let me just tell you, you're exactly the person God wants to use. You're the exact type of person God wants to use to bring about his purposes in this world. And so I don't care how jacked up you are. I don't care what your past is like. I don't care what the world says about you. You are the person God wants to use. So be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Now the question becomes this. Why does God do this? Why does God constantly choose what the world views as foolish and weak to carry out his purposes? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God intentionally chooses the weak and the foolish of this world. Why? Because he wants the glory. When something amazing happens through that weak and foolish person or thing, the glory doesn't go to that thing or that person because they're just weak and foolish. The glory goes to God, that God could use such a weak and foolish thing to bring out his purposes. And so God wants the glory. God wants to have the praise. And so God chooses what's messed up in this world to bring about his good. And he wants the glory for it. He doesn't want us to boast. He gets all the praise. He gets the glory. And so what we've seen throughout this passage is is there's this foolish message of the gospel. And then there's this foolish people that we believe this message. And now, in in a sense, according to the world, we're kind of a foolish group of people. But what I want you to know, and I've said it many times, is God uses what's weak and foolish in this world to bring about his purposes. So yes, he uses a message that's foolish. He uses a people that's foolish. But he does that to bring about redemption. He does that to give him all the praise and glory. Now now what does that mean for us? So, So what does that mean for you and I? Like as we right now, as we walk with Jesus every single day, what in the world does it mean for us as we think about everything we talked about in this passage? So let me give you a couple of takeaways, all right? The first takeaway is this. Don't get so bunged up when people think Christianity is foolish. All right, let's be honest. Like, people think Christianity is weird. Like, you go out in the world, you tell people who are Christians, a lot of people think, like, eh, that's kind of weird, that's kind of foolish, right? And that's fine. 
A lot of times we get so bunched up. If, if people or non-Christians start talking about how foolish they think Christians are, we do one of two things. Sometimes we cater to them. So we try to change Christianity and we try to, we try to fit it to what they want to make it more attractive. And that's ugly, right? That's not what we should do. Or we go the other way and we just say, you know what, I'm going to double down on the gospel and I'm just going to hammer it over your head over and over and just be a jerk about it. And neither of those are good. Because what we got to know is this, until God changes someone's heart, until God opens up someone's eyes, they're not going to see the gospel as beautiful. They're not going to see the gospel as attractive. They're not going to see the gospel as something that they want to give their life to. Let's be honest, before you were a Christian, you probably thought Christianity was a little silly. I know I did. I thought it was weird. I didn't want anything to do with it, right? It wasn't until God opened my heart, God changed my heart, gave me eyes to see that I realized, man, this Christianity thing is legit and I want to be a part of it. And so we got to understand, people that aren't Christians, they think Christianity is a little weird, and that's okay. And we just got to move on. But remember what Paul said at the beginning of the passage. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. All right? So don't get so bunged up. Second thing is this. Remember that the power is found in the message, not the messenger. So you and I, we have a great privilege as believers to be messengers of the gospel. Every single day as you go to your work, as you hang out with your friends and family, as you go out in the community, you have the privilege and you have the calling to be messengers of the gospel, to tell people about Jesus. But we got to know this, the power is not found in us. We're just the messengers. The power is not found in how we present it. The power is not found in how we share the gospel. The power is found in the gospel that we share. And we got to know that. We got to put the power in the right spot. For an example, there's, uh, there's been a couple of different uh, books that's highlighted this, but Charles Spurgeon. He was one of, one of the most famous preachers in all of church history, was, was a huge uh, impact for the gospel. And his conversion story uh, is, is a very interesting one that helps us see why this is important. So Charles Spurgeon, he came to faith when he was about 15. And the story goes, when he was 15, there was a snowstorm, and he, see, he sought shelter in this little Methodist church. And so he's out in this snowstorm, needed to get cover, so he slips into this little Methodist church. And they're about to have service, and he walks in, there's about 10 or 15 people there, so not many. And he sits down, and at this point in his life, he's wrestling with, his, with faith and God, and he, he's just in a bad spot. I mean, he would talk about almost feeling depressed many times. So he walks into this church, and, and the pastor's not there, probably because of the snowstorm, but the pastor's not there. The people are sitting around like, so are we going to have service today or not? So some guy gets up from the congregation, some dude gets up with the Bible and goes to the pulpit. And many stories will say that this guy wasn't a great speaker, so he's probably stumbling over his words. He gets up. He opens a Bible, he says a few things, and he reads one simple verse from the book of Isaiah that reads this. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. And at that moment, this dude in the congregation, he reads that verse, he looks at Spurgeon in the crowd and he says, son, you look miserable. Right? We, don't try, we don't do that here, like, we don't call you out, that's weird. But, but he said, son, you look miserable. And he says, look to Jesus. And in that moment, Spurgeon said that's when he embraced Jesus for the first time. That's when he looked to Jesus with faith and placed his faith on Jesus. And he would say that's where his relationship with God started. Now, here's what I want you to know. The power was not found in that dude that got up with the Bible. He was just some random guy from the congregation that probably didn't do a great job. But what did he do? He presented the gospel. The power was not found in the messenger. The power was found in the message and, and for you and I, that should encourage us and give us motivation because so many of us, we're afraid to share the gospel. Why? Because we don't know what to say. 
or we don't think we can present it right, or what if we fumble our words, or what if we say the wrong thing, or what if we don't convince that person to come to faith? And we think the power rests in us, and the power doesn't rest in us. The power rests in the message. The weakest presentation of the gospel can bring someone to salvation. The worst presentation of the gospel, where you fumble over your words and make no sense, can be used by God to save a soul. Why? Because the power is in the message, not the messenger. So I want you to get that. And then lastly this, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. We, we are a boastful people, right? We are, a, we are a group of people, we are a culture, we love to boast. We love to brag about our accomplishments, you know, our possessions. We love to brag about the money we have or the things we do. Like we love to make ourselves look good, right? But Paul says, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Look, look, look what he said. I'm not going to actually show you. I don't think it's on the screen. But at the end of the passage, he quotes Jeremiah and he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what Paul is saying is if you're going to boast, if you're going to make someone in your life look good, let it be God. If you're going to boast about something in your life, boast about what the Lord has done. Remember, you are nothing special. I am nothing special. According to the world, I'm just a foolish dude who believes a foolish message. But God chose us. God is working in us. And we boast in that. We don't boast in ourselves. So there's a song we sing, and we're actually going to respond together with it here in a moment. And we sing it here, so you probably know it. But in the song, there's a, there's a section that goes like this. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We are boastful people. We're going to boast. But why not boast in the Lord? Why not boast in what he has done? We're not going to boast in our gifts. We're not going to boast in our power. We're not going to boast in our wisdom. We're going to boast in Christ and what he has done for us. And so as we respond together even this morning, I want to encourage you as a church, when we sing that out, let's sing it like we believe it. Because we are people who boast in what Jesus has done, and it's a beautiful thing. So with that in mind, let me pray and ask God to help us do just that. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross. And God, we're honest. We know this world thinks the the message of the cross is a little foolish. We understand that people think it's absurd. But Lord, we realize the the cross, the, the gospel, God, is power. It saves us. It transforms us. We believe it. And God, we are so thankful that you would choose a jacked up, messed up people like us to be your kids and to be your people. And so, God, we boast in what you have done. We boast in the cross. We don't boast in our gifts, our power, our wisdom. We boast in Jesus, and we boast in his work. And so as we respond together now in song, God, help us to sing that out like we believe it, and let's truly go out and boast in it, God. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.